Welcome to RPG Reanimators, a podcast for GMs where we dissect horror scenarios and offer our experiences and advice to reanimate them at the table. I'm Alex. I'm Nathan. I'm Lex. So let's see who's in the waiting room. Today we're consulting on an acute case of scenario structure. We'll discuss lessons we've learned from art games and offer our best advice on how to try running horror games at your table. Now let's begin our consultation. Let's talk about what scenario structure actually is. Could you talk to me about it, Nathan? I mean, scenario structure uh, covers a lot of things. Uh, it covers how the scenario is paced out um, in that you kind of have a, a certain sort of flow to it that we'll talk about more. Um, there's a few different ways to define it I'm seeing here. Um, it's kind of the way that... Uh, your players are going to really experience the story and, and kind of how as a GM, you can plan ahead for it. A lot of what we're going to talk about today will be about planning for a certain design and how to arrange your scenarios to kind of match the, the theme you're going for. Very nice. Do any of you have any examples of where I can learn more about scenario structure? I like to get a lot of my structure design from the kind of film creation idea where you'll have either three acts or five acts, depending on how you want to think of it, of setup, confrontation, then resolution. Or if you're going to space it out a little bit more, you could have an intro, a raising tension, a rising action, the climax, and then a resolution. And really, that's just a way to say you're not going to have your big action piece right away in the scenario, and then it's all boring downhill from there. Kind of gives you a nice curve up to the climax. That's beautiful, Nathan. <laughs> um, in particular, I think that Mothership has a really, uh, specifically their Warden's Operation Manual that is coming out in print, but the PDF is out right now, uh, has a really great write-up on creating these horror scenarios, especially for the system. They call it Tombs, I think, uh, but really it's the same five-set structure that you're kind of looking for of something kind of kicks it all off. There's tension-raising then there's action, then there's the big climactic battle or tense moment, and then some sort of resolution. They usually say banishment of some kind. Like They kind of, I think, assume the monster is defeated, but it doesn't have to be, right? Like The resolution of this could be the world ends. Right, right. And from what I'm seeing, there's a lot of ways to get from A to B. A being just the start of the scenario to B being the climax. And throughout my experience, I've found about three different ways you can get to A to B. There's your linear scenario, or it's like a railroad. There's the dungeon slash branching pathways that gets you, that is funneled in and will get you to the ending or an ending. And then there's just the sandbox slash open style of a scenario structure where you've really you're taking wherever the players lead you. And another interesting note is that 
a scenario can be a combination of the two or the three. I could have a sandbox and then that zooms in to a, a dungeon or slash branching pathway when they enter a specific building. Or it could be a sandbox and then I'm on a ferry or something. And that's a linear structure where stuff happens to you. And then I go to an island. Once again, that's branching. Lex, could you talk to me about some startups of scenarios that you know? Sure. So in terms of starting up scenarios, I tend to have a few tropes in mind. The first one being an in-media res startup. When I think of this, where a scenario is snapping immediately into the action, the plot is kicking off with a bang, I think of Two-Headed Serpent. I think it has minimal exposition and boom, you are getting shot at and really lets the story sort of unfold from there. And I tend to use that as sort of my case example of it. Then you can have more exposition heavy type startups. Um, this is something that I think is a lot more common, especially for classic Call of Cthulhu scenarios where you're investigators, you're part of a group, there's this odd case, and then you start looking into this thing here. And that certainly has its own time and place. And in, we tend to play a lot of investigative horror scenarios. And so it tends to be necessary to have some exposition up front. I would consider Delta Green's handler briefing situation to be a little different. It's still exposition heavy, but it's very much just you are confronted with a dossier and told go do something. So it gives a little bit more direction. Players know and understand exactly what they're there to go do. We hope most of the time. Um, <laughs> although I have heard some contrasting opinions on this. Uh, Alex, yeah, go ahead. So talking about the whole Delta Green scenario structure, they are given uh, a ton of information. They're given an objective at the start, and then it all branches off to a huge sandbox, a focus sandbox, really. And that's what my experience with Arc Dream scenarios have been. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this is um, this is something that I think is kind of interesting. I uh, personally, I really enjoy the Pretending to Be People podcast, and I'm pretty sure it was Justin or maybe someone else on there was saying that they don't even have a handler briefing start in their Delta Green games. Whenever they run it, they just give the players essentially a sheet of paper with box text and saying, these are the things that you know, you are now on site and just really removing a lot of that initial exposition and setup, which I mean, I can definitely see. I think that it might depend on your group. If you do prefer just jumping right into a sandbox, personally, I always find handler briefings to be an opportunity for fun and setting up this mm -hmm. weird uh, sense of tension. This is um, something that I use as a big reference to how I like to run scenarios. And you're going to hear me recommend it again and again and again is Cult Divinity Lost's supplement Beyond Darkness and Madness. Um, there is a section in the early chapters of it called The Rhythm of Horror, which I have found really useful in trying to set up, regardless of if it's going to be linear or more of a sandbox type campaign, just kind of running through some of the headings as you know, starting off with this dreadful anticipation, increasing stakes, everything comes at a price, mention fearful uncertainty, asking them, are you sure? getting into time being precious, you can rely on nothing and no one, then defying their expectations and having this big hectic climax right towards the end as a way to just build this mounting, shifting sort of dread over time. I love that. And I would like to add that on the topic of information, 
the amount of information the player characters have at the start of the scenario can really affect the tone. If they have a lot of information and they have a clear defined objective, then they're, they're focused in and they can make plans on what to do. But if they don't have any information at all and they're just thrown into it in media res, like you said, they have to figure things out as they go. And that can be from many fronts. They can figure, they have to figure out what's actually happening versus if they're thrown in a completely uh, alien world, they have to figure out how the world works. Do you have a preference in terms of how you tend to start your scenarios if you have the option? I like to arm my players with uh, knowledge beforehand so they can make informed choices. But I am also a fan of just like, oh, you're just in this situation. React to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. They are both very uh, different feelings. Yeah, I'd say from when we've played, you kind of balance between the two. Um, most of the one shots you do will be more in media res. You want to hit the ground running from there. And oh, for sure. you just don't have the time for kind of the longer, slower ramp up into this action. But yeah, uh, long term campaigns go for it. And I, I think with a lot of the introduction stuff, you can have action oriented intros but generally then you have to kind of slow down for a moment if you want to build the tension back up. Yeah, we'll because... get to that in our pacing episode. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pacing is going to be really key in terms of setting up your scenarios right. to begin with. That's the right. Alien Core rulebook has some interesting guidance on this as well in terms of if there's a tense scene, give them a chance to catch their breath and catch them while their guard is down. Then build it back up again. And that's a good time to actually ask them questions about how is your character handling this? Because mm. a lot of the time, especially with uh, kind of investigation games, you'll have players that want to pull back during the action and then just push through in the post action. They actually have kind of an opposite response than what you want. So you need to make sure that during the action, you're saying, no, you, you need to say like, what do you do now? Keep like, kind of keep the pressure on a little, then after it, ask them the questions that they were asking earlier of like, oh, how big was the thing? Or, uh, you know, what does it remind you of? Well, mm -hmm. maybe in the moment you couldn't see that because it was biting your face off. But now that you've, you know, shot it, you can start looking and kind of processing information. That's also something I tend to do to preserve a bit of verisimilitude in the session whenever something may be happening and players like to ask questions, be like, so what does this look like? What is it like? Like you said, what does it remind me of? Have I seen anything like this before? I'm like, you are getting bitten right now. You don't have time to worry about that. Or like, there are things that are happening and I need to know how you're reacting. Because being able to keep that chaos at the table that like, yeah, that's what can make for fun sessions is when you are truly flying by the seat of your pants and are not making smart, informed decisions. Because this isn't a strategy game. This is a role-playing game. And kind of if we look at these charts, kind of where we're talking about, tense situations less stress situations you'll see a lot of these online if you look up script writing things is there is a general line that leads up to the big climactic whatever of the scenario but along the way there's little bumps that are rise in tension lower it again rise in tension lower it again but 
for the most part, it's all uphill until the resolution where you pretty much then go back down. But you definitely need to allow chances for characters to catch their Mm -hmm. breath, so to speak. And also just to share the things that they find. You know, in these games, people often split up. And especially in more sandboxy types of scenarios, then they may get multiple leads, allow them a chance to come back and communicate on that. Uh, That's something that I tend to do is I tend to sort of give bullet point drip feed hints and then scatter them around to encourage players to go and explore these different locations, then become more armed with information that should hopefully help. So what are some of the pitfalls of scenario structure? So usually when I see it, poor structure really can just lead to weird flow at the table where you'll have players that are expecting maybe something crazy to happen and then there's nothing or the opposite. They're expecting nothing and something horrible happens, which is usually the better option because it's more kind of a fun jump scare, Mm -hmm. but you can really just catch people off on a weird foot to where they're not able to react. And there's some level of meta knowledge there where it's a bit like riding a roller coaster, right? Is I know when I open the creepy door that I'm pretty sure the horrible creature is behind. I'm about to get hit with something nasty. And that's good because I kind of know structure wise. Oh, I'm near the, we're near the end of the playtime. Let's go. Let, you know, let's hit those walls. Let's have these things just slam into us and kill us or whatever. I'd like to add to that about the whole meta knowledge concept because you might have players that encounter what appears to be the finale and they mm-hmm. might get tricked and they're like, oh, it's, the game's over after this. I'm just going to blow all my luck. And then it turns out there's an entire <laughs> other section Nathan. that will last another session. <laughs> I stand by my decision. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Uh, you can subvert these expectations mm-hmm. and shock the players. Yeah, definitely. It's something to keep in mind in terms of what would be standard adventure pacing and then finding ways to trip this up. Because that's the worst is whenever you have a player who will be more inclined to metagame and it's like, oh, well, I'm clearly not going to go in there because that's where the spooky thing is. Well, cool. It's right behind you. And finding additional ways that like the spooky thing is going to come to you. You don't need to go Mm -hmm. looking for it. And uh, again, always trying to find ways to keep players on their toes. I think a a key portion to that, though, is it's best to know the rules before you start breaking them for this design. So it's one of those you can absolutely trick them with a, a fake climactic thing happening, but know what you're doing when you do that, because that can definitely lead to some weirdness uh, for sure. in the in the flow of the game. So kind of like art, like any kind of art try and know the rules and then cleverly break them, if that makes sense. And then that's sort of thinking as a worst case example, if you did want to have sort of an early climax or something, and you put a very lethal encounter early on at a halfway point in a scenario, what if you kill one or more player characters and don't have an easy way to replace them or bring them in? Are you going to just have that player sit out for an hour or more because that's extremely unfun. So (laughs) this is also a big part in terms of scenario structure is identifying where and how you want to bring in threats, 
and how dangerous you want those threats to be. I'm not saying just to always keep the werewolf hidden until the very end, or like always keep the monster at the end of the scenario, but don't have it rip roar terror 30% through. Like they may run into it and they can get hurt. Keep those damaged eye around a D8 or so, so you're not likely to one hit kill someone when there's a lot of time remaining. With a big caveat, unless this is communicated at the beginning of the scenario. If players know, there's a really distinct chance of their characters dying. And if you as a GM have planned for ways to bring in replacement PCs, that's your main exception to this rule here. But yeah, generally pacing your scenario and keeping your threats mounting and building without a risk of having someone sit on the sidelines for an hour, two hours, because no one really has fun with that. Yeah, and I, I've had situations in the past where player character death really derailed the mm -hmm. scenario because the rest of the group's like, oh my god, we just lost someone. It's not worth exploring any of this anymore. Yeah, let's <laughs> just go. Yep. Yeah. Um, some cons of the, the different types of scenario structures that I outlined earlier, like the linear scenario, uh, our failure can be really rough for linear scenarios because there's only one way forward. It's if you map it out, everything out like a flow chart, there's A to B to C to D, to the finale. Uh, and one way to mitigate that is to not lock clues behind roles. Mm -hmm. I know Trail of Cthulhu does this where you just you are given every vital piece of information that you need to to get to the end, but not necessarily all the information to get the best ending. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with this. And if you are going to have clues that are hidden behind roles, then have ways to fail forward and ways that you feel like a player can roll. And if they say they find this diary that is written in French, they only have a little bit of French, they roll it and fail. Are you just going to lock the rest of the scenario <laughs> behind that and like, well, fuck, like, I guess we're stuck here, guys. <laughs> or, like, let them read that and get the gist enough to continue, maybe with some wrong information or not fully accurate or complete information. So if you are going to have some roles, think about fun and engaging ways to make failure progress the overall narrative. Um, but the players may know something in this doesn't quite smell right. Like, I know yeah. we're still on the right track, but I don't like that I failed that and we're still going um, to give them a little bit of anticipatory dread, even if it is from a metagaming perspective, whatever. People are still having fun. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that because your players are only realistically going to play this scenario once. You want to get them the whole experience. Yeah. And it would be a shame if a scenario ends with uh, if it being unsatisfying because everyone was blocked out of an option mm -hmm. and they all died. Yeah, and especially missing out on really fun scenes or handouts and things like that. Like when I ran Signal to Noise, I have multiple potential options because I want to make damn sure you all see the cool video handouts. And so being able to include that in there is very important to me regardless of if you pass your roles or not. And I think a, a key thing with this too, is we're not saying necessarily, at least I hope we're not as there are consequences 
to failing. Mm-hmm. In this case, uh, it may not be an immediate failure. Maybe you get the clue and there's a time cost. Maybe the monster attacks you and you lose an arm or something like try and come up with costs that are interesting, bringing in other motivations or uh, kind of uh, goals of players and making them difficult. Um, So even though you're failing forward, there is still real danger to these things. Right. Failing doesn't always have to mean stop or no, but -hmm. finding ways to fail and still keep things going with some consequences in some sort like if you are going to have something take some more time have a consequence for that having taken longer time and that way people can still feel that failure kind of haunting them a bit i like in delta green um i think the bonds are very useful as a backup kind of uh consequence so you had to spend all day piecing together the textbooks into a map well you missed your daughter's dance recital like these are consequences that players can understand but they're not uh derailing anything right definitely and i just spoke on the challenges for linear scenarios so let's go opposite let's go what are the challenges for a sandbox well sandboxes can lead to analysis paralysis sometimes you just have too many options and your players are like i don't know what to do yeah uh, and a way to mediate that is to perhaps nudge them leave some clues give them more information that way they can act upon it have you run into cases with sandboxes where the gm can't figure out what to do no i'm perfect <laughs> that makes sense. I'm kidding. Usually I'm a pretty thorough planner. Mm-hmm. So do you think there is a danger with sandboxes? Like you're pretty thorough. Have you run into cases where players do something completely different and you're just having to improv the whole thing? Oh yeah. I definitely think so. But generally with sufficient planning, I feel like it's pretty easy to, even if they throw you a curveball, you know the scenario enough and the setup enough that you can kind of guide them back to one of the threads that you have more or less prepped and bring them into that. Not trying so to part, speak for you, Alex. Yeah. Well, well, so part of the structure then is having a little bit of a backup plan for some of these is structure in... Uh, kind of like the pyramid escape tunnels right is structure in a way to get things back onto track if they say oh insmith huh that's real cool yeah we're not going there we're going across to this other place well that's you know if you have no way back you can really run into a lot of trouble there Mm -hmm. in my case i often run into players we mentioned it before kind of spinning their wheels and not knowing with so many options, they don't really know what to follow up on. Or if they follow up on something, they get it about halfway done and then switch on to something else. And so they have a (laughs) lot of half followed up leads that are difficult to kind of help motivate without feeling like you're really pulling that curtain aside to say like, Hey guy, keep, keep, keep reading that book a little bit. You, You didn't get quite to the end. Um, something else that I tend to do in these cases is to have an additional timetable happening. Like there are NPCs and other antagonists who may have their own agendas operating in the background. So if the players stall out, 
their plans are still continuing on and then being able to see some implications of that can spur them into a new direction towards it. Emphasis on seeing the effect of the other parties, because if uh, if the other party is moving along, but the players aren't getting any indication, it might as well be nothing. Right. This was something I really struggled with in Extremophilia because it's really hard to see how things may be progressing until it's a complete dumpster fire. And so it it was hard to give some clues for that there. But yeah, being able to make it visible is important. Yep. So that's uh, kind of leading it back to the design of your structure is build in ways to deliver clues, uh, signposts, that sort of thing. And that's a great segue. How do we make these shine? Do you have any tips? (laughs) Beyond practice? Um, For me, I think the biggest part is actually keeping in mind the theme of the game when you're setting up your structure Do you call it the beating heart really uh you know what for horror games i think i might mm. where most call of cthulhu games you if you're running pulp probably have an action to start and then it slows down and builds up the action again most call of cthulhu it's pretty chill at the beginning. You get the, you know, oh, the professor's missing. Okay, let's go to his house, build up, build up, build up. You see other games like Alien, there's probably going to be a combat pretty early on. Maybe nothing lethal, but somebody's going to get punched. Somebody's going to get shot. Yeah, maybe not lethal. But then you look at something like if you're playing kind of a traditional fantasy game of some kind, we'll say, you're going to have lethal fights every day, multiple times a day. (laughs) You just need to keep that in mind when you're designing these things of what kind of theme does this game I'm running have and how can I keep to that? Because if you ran a Call of Cthulhu with uh, multiple lethal encounters a day, that is probably going to be difficult for players to expect. You have any thoughts, Lex? No, head empty. Okay. <laughs> Something that I've uh, seen a lot of folks recommend in this is really relying on this three clue rule where you can base most of your scenario around having these three key items that players can then come across at different times. Sort of expanding on this, I would reference having floating clues. If something says that it's a noted in a like book, if it's in a ledger in French, in the library, hidden behind some stuff, and they never go into the library, it's in the bedstand now. It's wherever the players are going to be. It's being able to have things flexible and give the players enough knowledge to continue around three-ish clues or so. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really good call with the clues. Um, I would caution people, don't expect all your clues to be uh, floating in that way. Like the ledger example is a good one. If the whole library ended up in the bathroom or the nightstand or whatever, I'd have questions. But if you have a clue that would derail the whole thing and they have to have it, you can also have it delivered in a different way, Mm -hmm. right? So in the case of the ledger, maybe you are at a bar and you hear someone going, man, that carpentry place, sure, I don't know, it seems shady, I don't know how their finances all sounds work like out. they're cutting some corners. Yeah, but exactly of some different way to provide that information. 
that the players need. Mm -hmm. And it can still be gated too. Like you could still have it be where, oh, you got to charm them a little bit to get more information out of it. It's just a different kind of challenge for the players. Right. And we kind of keyed on this a bit in the good GM habits discussion too, in terms of like having these clues in ways that if a player character is really good at something, have it be in a way that is accessible to them, that they can feel important for that. And also this just gets into the very fluid nature of scenario structure in general is if you are going to have clues and don't want to have all of them floating around, that's where you can switch from sandbox to a little bit more linear or to a more dungeon-ish based format and then open back up again. So maybe you have it be a sandbox floating clue, leads them into a secret passageway that is going to be kind of linear, but they're going to have to pass the torture chamber. So that can be your clue number two, and then open it back up into something else. Uh, just hypothetically, I do want to read about this carpenter store torture chamber, though. <laughs> I mean, who would be better to design it? Okay, that that's the next that's the next game. So Nathan, tell me a little bit about node design. I know we talked a bit before. <laughs> about this is it similar to like flow charts uh, a little bit yeah i'm taking a lot of this from the excellent rpg site the alexandrian they actually go into detail a fair bit about uh scenario structure node design and that's a way to kind of abstract some of your structure so rather than thinking of you know this full city you kind of space out like okay the library is a node here's where i'm going to put these characters this information then you have another node that might be the investigator's home base it's a way to lay things out and be thinking of okay well what's the clue they need to get from here to there mm. and you can like literally label the lines between them if you need to and that can really help identify cases where you might say oh well huh the library only leads to the cabin in the woods through the ledger i really should put a few more clues elsewhere that point to this cabin so that players could potentially find it very nice i i would like to uh talk about a point for long-term campaigns because we we discuss a lot of one-shot sort of things okay yeah. One thing so we discuss I... a lot of one shots. Can you tell me about long form play? No. One... <laughs> <laughs> I think one aspect of structure for long form play is kind of, again, think about television shows, first of all, where you will have the main plot and then subplot beats, right? So in a detective show, they'll have a murder that they need to solve, but at the same time, they maybe have a home life event that clues into this larger season long plot. And for campaigns, that's very helpful because you're going to have these individual sessions that all need to group together. And then at the very end, make sure you leave time in your whole structure to just have that epilogue and show how investigators have changed. Um, Alex, I think you did an awesome job of this when we played our ladies of sorrow where the investigators that made it through had a, a meetup and really showed how the group fell apart and really ended up hating each other by the end of it. But they were changed by what they went through. Yeah, thank you. So another point I have for making 
a scenario really shine in regards to its structure is gaining the ability to identify what type of structure an adventure has, even if it's pre-written. That way you can have a critical eye and deal with shortcomings by coming up with your own solutions. So for example, if I notice that something I'm reading through a scenario and I notice that it's pretty linear and I might identify points where if you don't succeed on a roll, the scenario just grinds to a halt just because the way it's written, then I'd mediate that by either adding a fail safe or getting rid of the roll altogether. That's important too, of not just clues, but NPCs. Um, it's kind of the classic video game problem, right? Is I killed the main quest giver that I need way later. The threads of fate have been severed and you don't want that to happen for your game, especially if the person you're looking at was the person you planned to be the final villain. Make sure when you're planning these, if the villain's going to show up and twirl their mustache, that they have a backup plan if they die. <laughs> Generally... So we've talked about having crucial, critical clues and not hiding those behind a roll. If you do find innovative ways to have different repercussions or consequences for the role, whether it be incomplete or potentially inaccurate information, mm -hmm. um, I really recommend against having critical NPCs that are required for the party to meet mm -hmm. and interact with in an ideal predetermined way to facilitate something else. Because, you know, you can have a static item based clue and there's only so many ways to go about it. You can't fuck up watching a video. Well, it's very unlikely your player characters <laughs> are going to fuck up while watching a video, but they can mess up while talking with a person. I they punched do. the TV. Exactly. Uh... I've had it happen. It's, I didn't get a chance to give a clue because someone just fucked I up feel, the TV. I'm feeling very attacked this session. <laughs> um, but then, the, so one of the examples is, um, I, I forget the name of the scenario, but I was running it, or I was playing in it, and we were a group who were sitting on a train, and we had all gotten this odd letter and summons, very typical Call of Cthulhu setup. And the GM describes this very handsome young man in a blue suit who seems to perk up at our conversation and come over to us. And it's like, hey, I couldn't help but see you from across the train car. And oh, this sounds really interesting. Sorry, I have very keen ears. And like they gave art of him and this guy was too handsome. And that was all of us immediately. <laughs> we're like, you are the fucking devil. Get away from me. I will stab you. I will cut you. And he kept following us everywhere. We kept trying to be like, dude, get the fuck away. I pulled a knife on him and was just like, get away from me, demon. After the end of the oh. scenario, the GM says, or the GM and author, I didn't realize at the time, said that you were supposed to be friends with them and they were going to help you out. And they were like the key <laughs> guide in PC. I'm like, well, don't make them so suspicious. Like, make it just some dude, not... I can't even think of a literature example, but like, don't make them Mr. Darling just coming by. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm just beautiful and rich. You can trust me. Like, no. They need a, they need a clear motivation in that case. Like if he had been involved with it and asked for your help, do you think you would have been as suspicious? 
in the general way we were approached and his overall insistence to stick with us, that was suspicious bar none. If we ran into <laughs> him later, also like, like if we see him at the same shop that we are going to later and he's also hassling the attendant, then we might have given him a second chance. But um, yeah, definitely I would exercise a lot more caution if you have a key NPC, especially like a, what, what's the video game term? The, um, the escort NPC. Yeah. Yeah. As it's really hard in RPG scenarios, unless you're just improvising a random goblin named Gorblo and <laughs> everyone loves him. That is true. Your players will always hate the people you want them to love and love the people you want them to hate. I don't know why that is. I think going back to Our Ladies of Sorrow, what I did to make you really care about Kurt, mm -hmm. that's what his name his name was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Care about an NPC that was around. Is that the I fact hated. you have to... Oh, you hated him. Everyone else loved him. <laughs> Is to make them empathetic. Right? Mm -hmm. Have the yeah. players care about their plights because they might align with their own or they just might need a friend. Yeah, I think you did a great job with that of give your giving your NPC like real problems that the investigators can't solve. And, and can while I to. yeah, and as a player, I liked Kurt as a character. He Fuck was him. every yeah, he embodied everything I didn't like. So I, I mean, that was a very fun uh, kind of inclusion for a long, uh, longer term campaign. Very nice. All right. So have you seen any scenarios that have great structure that you can give an example of? Yeah, I think viral is a really good example of getting people through a sandbox in a way that they kind of have little prompts to move. It gives them motivations to do things and it leads that wonderful uh, kind of rise up to a, a big, exciting ending um, a lot of mothership scenarios, I think, are structured very well for sandbox play because they talk about what the different factions are, their agendas. They really clearly motivate people and kind of give you the resources you need to go from intro all the way to the end. But you, Lex, do you have any scenarios that you really enjoyed that you think have great structure? One that is pretty linear in structure, but I think that it is really well written and uh, just generally great is of sorrow and clay. I won't get into spoilers or anything here, but like there it's rather fixed. There's only so many places or things that the characters can go on, but it is already laid out. The characters themselves are, they have great dynamics and reasons to invest in something and even though it may be, you know, a track that all ends point to the same destination, the outcome of that is completely uncertain and up to the players. I think it's a great example of a short, self-contained one-shot. Um, trying to think of other ones just off the top of my head here. And by that, I mean going through my PDF folder to <laughs> see if any names jump out. Really, I think a big key there is if you're going to have it be a linear scenario, make sure that 
the choices they made still matter in the end. I think that that's the main complaint people have whenever they say, oh, it's railroading. And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. sometimes there's not really a lot of ways through it. But true railroading that people really want to harp on is whenever none of my choices matter. Even if you are still going to go from the house into the woods to grandmother's house we go, you can still get there any ways that you want. And like, you still feel like your choices are really going to impact things later on, even if it just may be in the epilogue at a conclusion of some sort. Right. Do you have any funny stories (laughs) (laughs) Uh, relating to scenario structure? I don't have specific ones, but I will say the structure, especially when I write anything I do, like I've learned so much from my initial ones and I want to apologize from play testers. It's so easy to misjudge the timing of things, missing clues where you're ending up like, oh, guys, you need a you need to talk to the teddy bear like the teddy bear had all the answers and just you gotta try it to learn it at some level is read scenarios see how they're laid out and how they kind of expect the flow to go and think about how you can break it nathan i i said funny stories not sad <laughs> stories about sad your own stories. failures well no, also, no that's pretty funny for me <laughs> it's pretty funny well, um, <laughs> also it prepares you for a career in for it life. technology <laughs> no it's sending your ending it's definitely a learning process. You're going to fail. I hope not, but you know, you're going to fail and you're going to learn. You might say that you live, you learn. Or you die at the table. You love. No, you no, learn. no, no, no. You cry. Oh, God. Jesus. <laughs> That's going at the end. We hope our deranged utterings are helpful in bringing this topic to life at your table. You can join the discussion on Discord and subscribe or follow the podcast to hear more gruesome consultations. Be sure to check out the show notes for links from the discussion, where to find us, and other links for things like handouts and other resources. So until next time, thanks for listening to RPG Reanimators. Where your games can die. Or live. On the table. Lex, you were you were like really wet with the where your games can die. I could that yeah, that made me uncomfortable. Oh, I don't that like made, that. That made me uncomfortable. Where your games can die. <laughs> or live. Today on ASMR reanimators. I don't like this. I'm fucking done with this. Where's my check? All right. <laughs> <laughs>